Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I've got a really great conversation with Dr. Cassandra Alexopoulos about her work on media effects, especially related to infidelity. Afterwards, we'll be talking a little bit about the future of untenure tracks. So stick around if you're, if you're at all curious about that. This is episode 76 of Untenure Tracks. I mean, generally, my research is all about the different factors, environmental or individual, um, that influence how we think about sex and relationships. And that's, you know, the, the very, very broad umbrella. Um, more specifically, I what I am really interested in is how um, different environmental factors, specifically um entertainment media like music movies television um influence what we think about infidelity um and infidelity specifically because you know in the um media effects body of literature um people have been interested in a very long time um in you know what happens when we see sex on tv does it you know make us want to have sex at an earlier age have sex with more people use condoms not use condoms and so on um, but very few studies looked at, you know, how infidelity was portrayed. You know, they might, uh, you know, there have been studies in the past that look at, um, you know, when they're, when they're quantifying how often infidelity comes up, um, we'll say, you know, it's, it's this common or it happens when people are married, when people aren't married. But I, I'm also interested in, um, how it's framed, you know, do good things happen to people who cheat or do bad things happen? Does the relationship end? Do people get angry? Do people get away with it? And then, you know, what do we learn? And of course, I, um, you know, I think that it's an interesting question to ask for any type of viewer, but I think, um, you know, the adolescent and young adult population is particularly, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but is is particularly um, fruit, fertile ground for um, you know for attitudes and beliefs about infidelity to um, to change because you know we have so few relational experiences relative to say people who have been married for fifteen, twenty, fifty years, mm-hmm. um, and so that that's sort of what um, what my dissertation work was um, was largely looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, I I always like it when a title for the episode happens organically. Uh-huh. And then you said, "Do good things happen to people who cheat?" I imagine that there are people listening to this right now who like scooched forward a little bit uh-huh. and were like, "I hope not." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean. That. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it truly, it depends on the medium. So, um, so part of my research is, um, you know, when when we're thinking about 
okay, well, what happens when people see infidelity on TV or in music? It's also really important to figure out like, what are those messages? Like what messages are available to people? So um, part of my work is like experiment and survey based, but then another part is content analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with content analysis, but it, essentially for anyone listening, it's when you don't have people as your subjects, it's the media content. So I've, I've done content analyses of infidelity in music and TV series and in music. Um, I, so I also love, um, when titles just sort of come naturally for, for my paper. So if you, if you were to look at my Google Scholar profile, it's a lot of very shameless <laughs> puns or, or song titles. It's called easy listening, this particular paper. And, um, in all the most popular songs, I think the sample was, uh, 1500 songs over 25 years. Um, infidelity was referenced in about one in seven songs. Oh, wow. Which I know we're not supposed to have opinions about these sorts of things, but I thought that was a lot. I wasn't expecting it to be that much. Yeah. Um, and what I thought was really interesting was that the these consequences, whether they were positive or negative, positive being things like physical satisfaction, pride, self-esteem, um, you know, the like social um, praise, negative consequences being unwanted pregnancy, STDs, um, anger, guilt, sadness, and so on. Those, the presence of these consequences um, was quite mixed. So we saw pretty even numbers of the depiction of positive and negative consequences. Despite that, though, that, that physical satisfaction reference was far and away the most commonly cited consequence. So if we're thinking about, say, um, pop or hip hop songs, what that looked like was um, a lot of like, you know, like, damn girl, you feel so good. And, you know, <laughs> forget about your, your partner. Meet me at this place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I like, I I like the, awkward, the super awkward karaoke. <laughs> Yeah, you, I mean, and you, you were worried me. this was going to be like a super formal. Oh, you you would laugh so hard if you heard my either my training sessions with my coders. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I, I just um, collected data for sexual consent language in music, and there was a lot of like, um, you know, yeah. When I see him, the panties coming off. <laughs> It's so awkward, but I mean, there's another possible title for this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's the Nicki Minaj song. You just got to give me that look and the panties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> um, where? What was I? Where was I going with that? Um, so, physical satisfaction super common. Which I mean, you know, when you think about things from a media effects perspective. It's like, you know, this, this message that we're hearing again, pretty often that, that cheating, sure. It could come with these negative consequences, but it feels really good. And so what does that mean for people who again, are still kind of navigating this very, um, you know, what, what I think is a very complicated, complex relational experience. You know, it's very rare that people have hard and fast rules about how to respond or how to conduct themselves when they maybe develop feelings for someone outside of their committed relationship. Yeah. 
So I'm, I'm curious about the TV side of it too, but yeah. um, you had mentioned uh, that we're not supposed to have opinions about our stuff. You can, you're allowed to have opinions about your Thank you. I, I should say, I, I know I'm allowed to. It's just, I remember writing in the paper that that was a high number of references to infidelity and reviewers were like, you can't say that. You, you don't know. So I know. I roll. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the eye roll does not make it onto the uh, the audio version yeah. of the podcast. Yeah, that's that's a ridiculous yeah. thing to say. But yeah. um, so yeah, this, this, what was it like on the TV side of stuff? On TV, um, it was even more common. So we found it in about one third of our sample, and honestly, that's a pretty a conservative estimate because mm-hmm. what we did was we got the you know the top the most views viewed TV series. Um, over a year, I think the data were collected in like two, 2019 or 2020. And um, from each series, we randomly selected one episode. Okay. And if that episode contained some reference to infidelity, we also coded the episode before and the episode after just to get more information about like yeah. who cheated, what did they do? What kind of relationship were they in? Um, so this whole random selection method um, allowed us to not be biased in seeking out the infidelity. Um, but I think, I think is giving us probably a, a pretty low number. Yeah. Um, because I can, I can think of just having watched the shows myself. I yeah. can think of all the shows, all the dramas and the sitcoms that have some form of infidelity as defined by the characters who are experiencing yeah. it. Um, because of course, defining infidelity has always been a very um, challenging thing for, yeah. for people, for researchers, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, now I, I'm like, I'm trying to remember what shows were popular two years ago. <laughs> Thinking like, huh. I mean, I mean, truly yeah. all of them, like Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder. I, I mean, there are shows that are completely centered around infidelity, yeah. like The Affair, which yeah. I actually haven't seen, but I need to, I need to watch it. <laughs> so uh, if anybody, if anybody working on The Affair is listening, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we've lost them as a sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one other thing that um, that made the the TV sample different from music was that um, the consequences were more often negative than they were positive. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I can speculate as to why. Obviously, I'm, I'm not a TV programmer, but I can only assume that, especially with drama, with television mm-hmm. drama the bad stuff is what gets the plot moving. And so I, I really think that that um, is a major driving force and why, why we're seeing that instance. But in both, um, in both types of media, men were significantly more likely to be the cheater mm-hmm. um, and uh, women more, most mm-hmm. likely to be the um, victim of infidelity or the, um, the non-involved partner, you might call them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. On like the TV side, people don't want to watch shows where good things happen. To people. Yeah, or or if good things are happening, at least for a short amount of time, that it's just a matter of time before yeah. everything falls apart. Like I, this is uh, you know aging me now, but I'm thinking of like One Tree Hill, um, and you know, of course the the Peyton and Lucas love affair and you know they they they, they're the whole will they won't they and then it all falls to pieces when when brooke finds out 
Um, and it's, you know, it's heartbreaking. Like everybody mm-hmm. involved is, um, is shattered for seasons to come. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it has to be, uh, the good stuff has to be earned and the bad stuff doesn't. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and so that, that actually brings me then to, you know, thinking more about the effects side of things, mm-hmm. um, brings me to a finding, um, in, a one study in my dissertation called if your girl only knew, um, <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> looking at the, um, we looked at the effects of listening to a song about infidelity on, you know, different cognitions related to infidelity. Yeah. So we manipulated whether the song was positive uh-huh. or negative. So positive being like, you know, I just can't let you go. I yeah. can't have an entree without something on the side. <laughs> Says fabulous. Um, or negative, of course, would be like, um, I think the song that we used was Confessions by Usher. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's very upset. He's had sex with this other woman and now she's carrying his baby and he's torn up inside about telling his partner. Um, and then of course we had conditions with male singers and with female singers and we, um, we matched, um, mm-hmm. participants reported sex as well. And we found, un- unlike what I expected, I thought participants who lis- who would listen to, um, negative portrayals of infidelity i thought that they would be more tolerant like yes you know you're um or sorry if they listen to positive consequences yeah, i was gonna say i know i just gave it away <laughs> they listen to positive consequences they would be more tolerant because it's sort of maybe signaling to like a cultural acceptance of infidelity like it's mm-hmm. gonna happen anyway this is how people are supposed to respond to infidelity yeah. but it, it was the opposite people were more tolerant when listening to the negative consequences. And so what I think is happening here is maybe that, you know, if, if I'm thinking of myself as um, from the perspective of the person being cheated on and I'm hearing this cheater be very remorseful, very guilty, um, you know, really like dragging themselves through the mud, then maybe, um, you know, it's, I, I'm sort of feeling like, okay, yeah, good. You feel bad. And that makes me more accepting of what you did because research has shown that we are more forgiving of infidelity when the cheater A comes clean and B when they, um, when they express remorse for what Mm -hmm. they've done. And so I don't know. That's, that's the best explanation that I could come up with. Yeah. So is that among young people who are listening to it? Like, yeah, these were, um, college undergraduates in the U.S. and in um, the U.K. as well. Huh. That's interesting. So yeah. college students listening to songs where infidelity is, there's remorse for it, makes mm-hmm. them more accepting of it. Yeah. So when I say accepting or tolerant, the items yeah. were like, um, uh, I would be... Um, hurt if my partner cheated on me i would end the relationship hmm. if my partner cheated on me and and yeah. by cheated we listed out like a, a number of different behaviors yeah. as well um and um then it, we also brought in attachment orientation yeah as this as this moderating variable so we found that insecure attachment is is this interesting moderator so people who um 
heard the positive song. So yay, infidelity, super fun. You're going to have a great time. They um, exhibited greater intention to commit infidelity Mm -hmm. and a greater justification for infidelity, but only if they were avoidantly attached, which kind of makes sense, right? Because avoidantly attached people are characteristically um, uncomfortable with intimacy and with intimate relationships, yeah. takes a really long time to sort of break down those walls. They're very distrusting of other people. They feel like they can only rely on themselves. Yeah. So it, you know, potentially, um, you know, it's just, it's, they're more likely to be receptive to messages that, um, you know, that express these like low levels of commitment and, and people who are avoidantly attached to are, um, you know, who have a tendency to ha- to score lower in closeness and commitment with their partners. If those are the factors that prevent us from committing infidelity, then, um, you know, when those, when those things aren't there, then um, it's just easier for those messages to, to mm-hmm. resonate. That's, that's so interesting though, because I, I, I don't know, college students are so fascinating and trying mm-hmm. to come up with uh, an explanation of, of why that would be. I'm, I'm struggling. You yeah. Know. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Do you, do you plan on trying to follow that up at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to, at some point, what I'm, I'm currently, I, what I'm currently kind of very, very busy doing is, um, shifting gears a little bit to the sexual consent depictions in media stuff. So, mm-hmm. but I have looked at, um, attachment as a moderator there as well. And we, mm-hmm. we find similar things that, um, at least in, in the studies that I've conducted, there are very few direct effects of exposure to some media narrative on, you know, what I think or what I feel. It's, there's always some, um, moderator that is, um, strengthening or diminishing that influence. And so with the sexual consent stuff, we manipulated whether adolescents saw verbal consent like is Mm -hmm. this okay um Mm. nonverbal consent so just you know making out and them sort of like Mm. letting each other (laughs) proceed with the sexual encounter or a control condition and um whether participants were anxiously or avoidantly attached seemed to um make a difference in how people were um, expressing their ideas about consent yeah that's so interesting too just like thinking about just how those i want to say subtle but i know it's not subtle differences to how those mm, nonverbal differences maybe and how it's Mm -hmm. how it's expressed can have such an impact on how how viewers then interpret that um and then presumably applied in their own lives is is kind of scary yeah (laughs) actually Right. Like they're getting, they're getting this information so frequently in school. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that, that's something like TV or movie can, can somehow damage that or or otherwise alter it is really wild. And you, you bring up a really good point there about this, this idea of them applying these messages to their own lives. Of course, what's, what's quite common in media research is having our outcome or dependent variables be these self-report variables. How likely do you think you would be to commit infidelity or use consent or whatever? Um, But I think behavioral measures would be a really, really great follow-up to these studies. So I've, I have been at least for the last few years thinking about 
um, how I can measure infidelity, even if it's just indirect. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, um, I might not be able to follow participants for the next year and ask them every day, Hey, did you cheat on your partner? Hey, did you cheat on your partner? But maybe it's some sort of proxy measure. Like, um, for instance, if we get participants set up in like a dating, a fake dating app environment, and we measure things like how quickly they're swiping through profiles or, um, how much time they're spending on profiles, which we use like eye tracking software to see like what bits of information they're focusing on as sort of an indirect measure of like selectivity, um, you know, propensity to, I don't know, Mm -hmm. to pay attention to like relational cues as opposed to just physical attractiveness and things like that, Mm -hmm. that could in some, you know, um, roundabout way be related to infidelity, even if it's not, Mm -hmm. did you cheat on your partner? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely don't have to ask every day. Yeah. <laughs> that'd, that'd be rough. But you could do like a one year follow up and, and just kind of, I don't know, just put it out there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Because um, certainly, certainly you would, you would get some folks that way. Yeah. Um, but then if you're trying to get at some of the nuances in it, I wonder if, if a survey would even, if that would even work. Yeah. You know? Um, and what, what I think is really cool, again, kind of biased here, but I, this paper isn't out yet, but it's under review right now. Um, I, uh, my uh, advisor from my PhD program, Laramie Taylor, and I, we thought it would be really cool to see if, if it doesn't even take actual infidelity in the media to influence how we think about infidelity. If even something is just a skewed sex ratio is enough. Hmm. So um, you know, in biological market theory, when we're in some environment where the men greatly outnumber the women, or the women greatly outnumber the men, depending on who we're interested in and what kind of partner we're trying to seek, that influences how, um, you know, how basically how, how good we feel like, yes, I've got so many romantic and sexual candidates available to me. I get, I get my pick of the crop mm-hmm. or... On the flip side, oh my gosh, there's no one here. I better lower my standards as soon as possible if I want to secure a partner. Um, and of course, me being very interested in infidelity, I, I, you can only imagine how that would have implications for how we respond to mm-hmm. our partner's transgressions. Oh, my partner did this horrible thing, but they're probably the best I'm ever going to get versus I don't, I don't need this bullshit. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go find someone else. Yeah. So, um, using, we didn't use like actual TV narratives for this study. We just sort of had these, um, like fake cast, like t- movie cast photos and a short movie description. Yeah. Um, and we manipulated whether, um, this love triangle scenario was two men vying for the affection of a woman or two women vying for the affection of a man. Um, and of course, we predicted that when um, you are exposed to this abundance of partners, depending on your sexual orientation and whether that um, that fits with um, mm-hmm. who you're interested in, um, that you would be less tolerant of infidelity, mm-hmm. as opposed to when you see a scarcity of partners. Oh no, I don't. You know, there's only one man for, for two women, um, yeah. you'd be more tolerant of infidelity. 
And we found actually, this was only true among our female participants um, that yeah, when they saw the, um, uh, the abundance of partners. So when they saw more men, they were less tolerant of infidelity. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was just this brief report, but I, I was really excited about that finding. And what I definitely want to do as a follow-up is sure. We started out by looking at infidelity, but there's so many other like outcomes that could be interesting. You know, for instance, like, um, the intention to refuse unwanted sex or, um, I don't know, the intention to tolerate relational dating abuse, uh, you know, all sorts of things where if we feel mm-hmm. like we're stuck, yeah, uh, we change how we want to respond to something. Yeah. So I have, I have two questions and they're, I think yeah. they're different questions. Okay. My, my first is, have you thought about looking at this in terms of reality TV? Because there could be like a bachelor bachelorette <laughs> thing here. <laughs> which could be like really interesting. (laughs) Absolutely. I've been talking to one of my colleagues at UMass Boston about this. We've actually been talking about it for about a year. He, he's more interested in um, like, you know, he, he's like a gender scholar and is Mm -hmm. really interested in like materialism and gender in the real housewives franchise. And Mm -hmm. I am really excited about this like bachelor bachelorette. And, and it's this weird you know, we don't normally find ourselves in such a skewed mm-hmm. situation in the real world. Only when we're watching The Bachelorette do I feel like 30 men are vying for one woman. And, you know, I have to say, I'm a media effects scholar. I should be impervious to the effects. <laughs> I'm not. When I'm done watching it, I'm like, damn, girl. Yeah, get it. <laughs> and I, I can see. I see how it, I see how it works. <laughs> You're not supposed to be impervious, though. You're <laughs> I know. A human being. I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you can, if you can make yourself impervious to the grossly manipulative <laughs> television stuff, that's like a superpower. Um, yeah, I know, and I do. I get a lot of people asking, like, "Do you just think about infidelity all the time?" And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> Unfortunately, for whoever I'm dating at the time, yes, I do. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the other, the other thing I wanted to ask about is like, do you think that, it, what do you think the effect of genre would be? So I, I was thinking about the love triangle thing. Yeah. Um, and, and all the ways that that is kind of used as a storytelling device and for better or worse. Right. So <laughs> like, uh, Barb and Star go to Mr. Del Mar <laughs> is, a, is a love I triangle. But then at the same time, and I'm struggling to think of any off the top of my head, but I know that there are like horror movies where the love triangle is a big part of it, mm-hmm. um, or at least part of it. Um, and so I wonder, I, I wonder how that affects people. Yeah. You know, that's... if it's something portrayed as jokey or if it's something mm-hmm. that's portrayed as like a life or death situation right. <laughs> or maybe like, like a more traditional kind of, kind of drama. Or is it like a Hallmark Channel movie at Christmas, right? Like that. That's a a good question. I mean, when it comes to, say, television genres, in in that study, we didn't find any significant differences in how how common infidelity was in Mm -hmm. in the different genres. But whether that would have an effect, I do. I, 
that w- that's a really interesting question because you bring up horror. Yeah. I'm actually obsessed with horror movies. I've been trying to think of a way to integrate horror into my research somehow because it's so fun. But I, you know, there's there's this whole idea that when we are reminded of our humanity, of our, yeah. um, you know, that we're gonna die one day, we we behave in different ways. Like we become more. Um, I think. Um, our, our, our political beliefs become stronger and mm. we, uh, we tend to uh, be more likely to try to develop relationships or like cling to or develop intimate relationships. Um, so yeah, I do wonder if like when we're primed in that way or even just experience that physiological arousal, yeah. um, is, does that, you know, maybe does that excitation transfer influence Mm-hmm. how we how we are actually i mm-hmm. but with horror you have all the the types of arousal happening yeah. usually so yeah that would be, yeah. be really interesting even just like pop stuff right like twilight <laughs> yeah <laughs> or was like centered on this love triangle uh, mm-hmm. that in, that encouraged like fan participation in the love triangle yeah right? um i wonder I just, I don't know. Like, I'm not a media effects person. I am a horror writer, but not a media effects person. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, or even just, like, I, I finally got around uh, to watching Get Out last night, which has its own, like, not love triangle, but there's, like, jealousy issues at, mm-hmm. kind of at the core of it is one of the, one of the driving subplots um, that I thought was, was really interesting. Yeah. And, and the payoff for that was, was I thought, really smart. I mean, so much of that movie is brilliant, but... Oh, yeah, um. so good. <laughs> Such an enjoyable movie. I though, So I should say, actually, just about 20 minutes ago, I saw something on Twitter. That, you know, we use this term love triangle, but someone posted on Twitter that, like, in order for it to be a true love triangle, at, <laughs> least, at least one of the characters needs to be queer. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, they didn't come up with a new name for it, but maybe we could call it, like, a love circumflex or something like that. Or, I, I'm I so know. far removed from the <laughs> geometry that... <laughs> I am useless here. <laughs> yeah, no point. Quite well taken. Yeah, um, but I, I mean, I, I still use it too. I yeah, what else to call it? <laughs> yeah, no. And there's yeah, uh, a writing prompt <laughs> in there somewhere <laughs> for folks. Yeah. Um. So, um, I imagine that bringing your research into the classroom has been a pretty interesting. <laughs> A pretty interesting experience for you. Yeah, it's it's fun. I I love it. Um, I uh, created a class called Love, Sex, and Media Effects, and we spend about two thirds of the class talking about entertainment media. Again, music, mm-hmm. movies, TV, um, or even like news media, advertising, um, and depictions of dating, marriage, romance, sex. How you know? What do we learn? How do we learn? What are the different theories and the cognitive mechanisms at play? Um, and it's a lot of fun. And during that time, we think about, for instance, media realism and how, you know, when we engage with some sort of media narrative, it's not just, is this realistic or is it not? Truly, it might feel that way, but truly, there's so many different ways um, in which we can judge how realistic something is. For instance, when you watch The Bachelorette, 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We all know life is not really like that, but we do, there is this air of like, they are real people, mm-hmm. right? They're not animated. It sure that you do have producers very carefully morphing the story, but we are made to believe that it's not scripted. And so that has this, um, you know, increased realism compared to something that is completely scripted. Um, and, you know, they're, they're in cities, they're from cities that we know and we recognize. And sometimes you might even know the, the contestants, maybe you went to high school with one of them. Um, so what I do is I get um, my students as a short assignment to compare um, an episode of The Bachelor or Bachelorette with um, an episode of a scripted TV show called Unreal. Have you ever heard mm-hmm. of it? Mm-hmm. It's so good. It's, again, a scripted show, but it's about like the making of a show like The Bachelor. And mm-hmm. so the main characters are like the producers mm-hmm. and, and whatnot and what they're going through and, and how they're setting up the, the limo pulling up and everybody coming out. And, and so I have students pick, you know, a few of those realism dimensions, um, mm-hmm. social utility, perceptual persuasiveness, and so on. Uh, you know, which one sort of wins out. And the whole point of it is to get students to think about, okay, well, one's scripted and one's not, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one's inherently more realistic than the other. They they all have things that we need to be critical of, different mm-hmm. aspects that we need to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, in the last portion of of the class, we sort of switch gears to new media and we talk about things like, texting and sexting and online dating, um, how social media and presenting a relationship on social media, um, you know, is, is so pervasive in everybody's lives, especially now with, with TikTok. I feel like I haven't really taught the class since TikTok really blew up, Mm -hmm. but I feel like there's a lot to talk about there, you know, with people, you know, Oh, here's my, my husband and here are the cute things that we do and cook together. Um, yeah, it, I, I love it. I love teaching about it. So I'm, I'm curious. Um, I'm always curious about uh, ways that, that folks handle sorts of like myths and, and pre, preconceived notions and ideas that students come into their classes with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I can't even hazard to guess <laughs> what, what a student would come into into your class expecting to hear or, you know, any kind of debunking that you have to do or like, you know, right off the, off the, right off the bat, um, a student's going to say something about X and this is a myth that came from this source. Like, how does, how does that happen for you? That's a good question. Um, I have had students before say like, do people, you know, will say, oh, it's a commonly held belief that, I don't know, um, that the media really pushes this agenda of, say, love at first sight. And I've had a couple of students before say, you know, do people actually believe that, though? Because I, you know, I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that, I mean, that's great that you don't. Um, you know, maybe like, did you have a media literacy class in elementary school and high school? Because not everybody gets that. And, you know, some, sometimes it's, and, and like I said, sometimes you know that it's not true, but you're watching it and the feelings are flowing and, and you can't help but feel even just for a moment, like, oh man, that'd be really nice. So what the whole, the whole point of the class is to get students to kind of catch themselves. What I do often hear from them 
and I am very, very proud when I do hear this, I'll hear students, you know, coming into the classroom, they're chatting with each other and they're like, I, my boyfriend won't let me watch TV with him anymore because I'm picking apart everything. Or my (laughs) friends say I'm so annoying because I keep, you know, we talk a lot about personality as well. So I keep, you know, analyzing their personalities and their dating styles and (laughs) their conflict (laughs) styles. (laughs) I'm like, yes, be that annoying friend. I want to make, make more of you. (laughs) I think it's the goal of so many of us to ruin TV. (laughs) For our students. Exactly. A little bit more deeply about stuff. I was I was laughing when you were when you were talking about that because I used to have a an exercise I would do in my intro sociology course about true love. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, just for fun, I'm going to tell you who your true love is and where in the world they live. If you have your if they're if they you have your your one and only out there. Mm-hmm. And so I on index cards I wrote ten descriptions of people. Okay. And I would and I made this big like show of shuffling them and, and handing them out to people who volunteered. And um, <laughs> there was a young man uh, who got, he was from, so this is when I teaching in Florida. Um, he was a, a Florabama native from the Florida panhandle. Okay. And his, his one true love in the world was a 40 year old uh, alligator farmer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and yeah. he, this student was, furious <laughs> with with the implication of of what the assignment said about him and mm-hmm. and thought that I had done this on purpose um and was making accusations about his own sexuality while oh, the rest no. of the class laughed at him because yeah. he was like getting he was starting to hyperventilate a little bit oh, um no. and like and I said like I I randomly gave this to you sure and then started like <laughs> <laughs> making fun of him about it because he's like this wouldn't happen this would never happen in a million years and i'm like i'm sorry but uh cupid says otherwise yeah the fates have spoken <laughs> yeah this is your this is your one and only and you're lucky because we're so close and you should go out and pursue this imaginary person that i just made up yeah um and <laughs> um similarly like and before like the uh, the idea that gave me the genesis for this idea was to talk about infidelity and have mm-hmm. students kind of assign stereotypes to it um and just like the different ways that there's sort of inherent sexism um came out because mm-hmm. when i was talking about the male cheater i mean both both of them had the same gpa they were in the same sports um the same like greek organizations and stuff mm-hmm. but for the for the guy that i made up um I remember having, uh, there were young women in that class who were like, Dr. Wilzak, what's his name? Like, is he real? Mm-hmm. Can you, can you tell me who he is? Like, no, <laughs> that's He's weird. an alligator farmer. <laughs> <laughs> that's gross. <laughs> I'm not going to hook you up with a fictional person <laughs> that I just made up off the top of my head. Sorry. Um, so it's just, it's funny how, uh, even, even students who are, who are, primed right mm-hmm. and made aware that this is just a thought experiment um still f- are, because of what it what we're talking about uh still throw all of that intellect and, and sense out the window yeah <laughs> over this um, over an imaginary person yeah i so so these preconceived notions about infidelity i actually um 
I'm still sort of in the beginning stages of this study, or I, I think it'll end up being a series of studies, but I, um, I'm really interested in that idea that like, what, what do we believe about infidelity? Because it seems like a lot of people, many people have similar beliefs, like Mm -hmm. men are the ones who cheat more often. And when they do, it's for these reasons. And when women do, it's for these reasons. And, um, you know, this is what happens when, when you cheat and so on. So, you know, previous research have, has um, conceptualized this, this I don't know what you would call it, a, a set of beliefs called the heterosexual script that's very mm-hmm. pervasive in me- media. And certain ideas within the heterosexual script are, for instance, that men are sex-driven, that women, um, you know, are always looking for relationships, they're more passive in the relationship initiation process. Um, and you know, all those gendered, um, stereotypes also that, mm-hmm. that for instance, um, male, um, queerness or gayness is, is bad, but female queerness or gayness is to be fetishized and mm-hmm. you know, all those things. Mm-hmm. Why well, I'm thinking, okay, well, I haven't really seen any studies that measure people's beliefs about infidelity, not necessarily whether they would or wouldn't mm-hmm. commit it, but what do they think about it in general? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to create this measure of beliefs about infidelity and then um, investigate whether increased media consumption led, leads to greater endorsement. And I'm, you know, mm-hmm. my, based on the, the name, the heterosexual script, I'm thinking this infidelity script mm-hmm. is, um, you know, I can only assume that, again, if, especially if you have very little direct experience with infidelity, um, that the media has this, you know, really strong um, influence on the formation and the activation of the infidelity script. And so where I'm at right now with that, with that study is I've collected a bunch of open-ended data from mm-hmm. a variety of participants, young adults, um, older adults, um, and asked them sort of like the who, what, when, where, why of infidelity. So who's, who, when you think about infidelity, who's going to commit it? Mm-hmm. Um, at what point in the relationship does it, does it happen? Um, and so on and so forth. And then, so we've, I've gotten to the point of, you know, quantifying those open-ended responses. And now I just need to, I need to create the measure, validate the measure, and then we'll do the media stuff. But I, I'm excited. I hope, um, I hope some interesting stuff comes out of it. Yeah. I think there's so many like interesting directions that could go, right. Um, thinking about like the role of religion and the role yeah. of social class. I think those two, like those are the first two things that came to mind mm-hmm. about people's um, like uh, preconceived ideas yeah. um, about it. And then what is that? What then <laughs> does that uh, do to their own, to their own lives? I think yeah. it'd be super, cause then you're looking out almost like the feedback loop, mm-hmm. right? Kind of. I think its own its own triangle, an effect triangle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's that's the the so what of all this stuff, anyway. Like, yeah. okay, well, so what if I watch a TV show and I think a certain way after? Well, the so what is that if we if we can explain even just have have one small explanation for 
um, how we make these really big, impactful decisions about the, our relationships and knowing how common infidelity is. I think it, it is quite important. You know, it happens yeah. to so many people. Um, you know, I think it's, it's worth thinking about and worth, um, worth looking at if we can, um, identify like why something happened. And I think it could have really important implications for say marriage and family therapy as well, potentially. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, therapy. I was even thinking just like, um, providing another angle on sort of understanding the, the, I don't want to say new ways, um, but some of the changes in how, how gender identity yeah. Um, works and, and the changes that have come about even in the last five years, right? Um, with more and more people feeling comfortable um, talking about or identifying as non-binary or gender fluid, mm-hmm. I think adding infidelity to this um, is like an interesting angle into um, a lot of, uh, into the lives of a lot of folks that at least the social sciences have, have overlooked yeah. um, for ever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Um, I also, so this might sound like a little bit of a sidetrack, but you had, you had mentioned that you are doing research on the, on dating apps as well. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to mention that a little bit, because I know that's something that I think folks would want to hear about. Yeah. Um, so the dating app stuff is, is a relatively new, um, avenue of research that I've taken in, in just the last few years, but it's, um, yeah, it's so fun. I mean, the way that, um, dating app research to me is connected to this like traditional media research is that there's still this fundamental question of when I find myself in a certain environment or I'm engaging with some sort of media, um, how does that environment change how I perceive myself, other people, relationships, and so on? So one, um, one paper that I have called swiping more, committing less is, you know, I, I think about the dating app environment as, um, you know, not, not being terribly unlike say walking into a bar and you, you know, you might see many potential romantic candidates or you might see very few out of, out of all the people that are there and dating apps give users this unique experience of having all these potential candidates at your fingertips. Now, Unsurprisingly, past studies have found that, sure, dating apps facilitate infidelity. It's not really a surprise. But I, aside from the fact that dating apps are really convenient, um, I just, I felt like there's got to be something more going on here. I want to know exactly why, like what, what explains this connection between dating app use and, and infidelity. So we measured... Um, measured a, a few different things. Um, the frequency of dating app use. So how often are you on dating apps? Um, and the idea there is that if I'm on a dating app all the time, and I've got, you know, again, this like unlimited n- number of people um, that would potentially lead to an increase in the perceived number of, of candidates. And then that would be positively related to intention to commit infidelity. 
But another potential avenue is, um, is your specific experience on the dating app. So sure, you could be on a dating app all day if you want to, mm-hmm. but you might not get that many matches or that many messages from people. So we measured perceived success. Mm-hmm. So whether, whether it's accurate or not, um, I think the perception is what's important in this context. Yeah. If I were to ask you, you know, out of 10 people that you swipe right on, how mm-hmm. roughly how many would you say on average you match with mm-hmm. out of those matches, how many people send messages to you and so on. Mm-hmm. And so that perceived success would then be, um, would then lead to um, an increase in self-perceived desirability. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, yeah. I'm on this dating app, but I also have a lot to offer. And I think other mm-hmm. people see that. And then that in turn would be positively associated with intention to commit infidelity. Hmm. We found that um, the frequency variable was not directly associated with success and that, you know, the, the number of partners, that, that avenue didn't really work out, but perceived success did. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, what I think is interesting, what's maybe not so intuitive is it's not just being on the app. It's not just spending time on the app. It, what matters is that ego boost that you yeah. get. From, from other people, <laughs> from other people um, expressing interest in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I thought was very, very surprising about this study, we collected data from an undergraduate student sample, but also like a, a community sample. And about 40% of users, of dating app users, um, were already in a relationship. So, you know, of course, some fraction of, of those people will probably be on there with their partner looking for a third partner or people in open relationships. But that's just, I mean, I can't imagine that that's all 40%. Yeah. And I, you know, I learned my lesson. I didn't ask in that study whether they were in an open relationship or not. And now I know. Yeah. <laughs> there studies to do that. Um, but 40% was a lot. <laughs> so... <laughs> And, and again, you're allowed to say that's surprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a pretty high number. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got nothing. <laughs> I, got, yeah. I got nothing. I have no point of reference. <laughs> that's okay. No worries. To, to come back to on that. No, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I was, I was thinking about like the importance more and more um, especially after the events of the last few years, right? And, and understanding how online behavior and online experiences translates into offline experiences and behavior um, with a variety of stuff. And it's actually kind of surprising to me, at least on the criminology side, that mm-hmm. folks have spent a long time kind of with their torches and pitchforks out for video games. Um, but then when I ask students about social media use, it's like, oh, well, social media is like inherently a good thing. <laughs> and, and why, why I think about it critically, but yeah. a video game that came out 15 years ago, that's, that's putting you on the path to hell clearly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so like, I'm, I worry sometimes about like the lack of, uh, critical, I don't know, discussions about internet usage. Um, and like how addictive it is. Uh, and how like, destructive those addictions can end up being. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, thinking about it from the infidelity angle, like that's just, I think, one one part of it, right? That um, 
the, the perception that I'm very popular online is now going to change how I behave in offline relationships is, is pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I, um, no small number of, of participants in these studies is on a dating app specifically for the purpose of getting an ego boost. Mm-hmm. Like that, there's a good number of people who they might not be looking for a relationship or even like a sexual yeah. encounter. They are just there to sort of test the waters, get a sense of their, their own mate value, which, you know, I, if they are already in a relationship, they probably are, you know, they might not indicate that they want to commit infidelity, but they're probably not that far from, from getting yeah. to that point. If, if they're reaching that point of like, okay, you know, I just, I just want to see what's out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so um, what I, what I really love about this dating app stuff is in the classroom. So in that last part of, um, of the love, sex and media effects class, when we talk about dating apps and, um, and all these different, um, mediated forms of communication, I get my students to do a case study assignment where I provide them with, I think, you know, five or six made up cases, Mm -hmm. but about real dating apps Mm -hmm. and they can pick, you know, two or three of them to, to use research Mm -hmm. and theory to answer this question. So for instance, um, you know, it, this is what the deal is with this dating app, this real dating app that, that you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, um, they're finding that their users are making a profile. They're swiping through profiles. So they're engaging with the app a lot, but they're letting a lot of matches expire mm-hmm. um, or they're not returning messages. And come up with an explanation as to why people mm-hmm. might do this. And I, I really, I love getting students to think about whether they use dating apps or not. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them do though. <laughs> yeah. um, getting them to think about like, I, I don't know, to come up with these predictions for behavior. That's, that's not just, you know, made up, but mm-hmm. okay, well, here's what we know. Here's what previous studies have found. Mm-hmm. And I, I have something to offer a real world industry problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they, they love to feel like, you know, they, they get to put their professional cap on and, um, and provide advice to, mm-hmm. to people. It's very cool. <laughs> in my experience, mm-hmm. in my 19 years experience, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's so much fun. Um, so Cassandra, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I have one more question to ask you before, um, I let you go. So one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to work into the show, um, at least for folks who are, um, doing work in the research world, um, is what do they want, uh, the public to take away from their work? So if somebody has stumbled onto this based on whatever, um, really catchy title (laughs) we end up giving it. Um, and they've, they've made it through an hour almost, um, of your, of your work. What do you want the takeaway to be? Um, okay. I think, I think the, the theme that really threads through every study, pretty much every study I've ever done is that it's very rarely just, um, a is associated with B equation or a affects B. Mm. There's always this, we, we come to the table, we approach media and relationships, information about relationships with, 
um, you know, our own set of biases and personality traits. And we might have been cheated on in the past. We might have cheated in the past. The combination of, of those things um, is such a strong um, predictor of, of how I'm going to internalize these messages. And so that, you know, that could be a neutral thing, but it, it could also be a really good thing if we, if we have this high level of self-awareness and self-understanding. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not a therapist, but I feel like <laughs> the answer there is go to therapy, <laughs> get, get, a, get a good understanding of, of your own cognitions, because I, I really do feel like it explains so much of, um, of what we walk away with, you know, if I'm, even if it's something as simple as watching the bachelorette or the bachelor or, you know, your partner says a celebrity is attractive or I'm, I spend three hours on a dating app and I haven't gotten any matches. The, the things that happen to me in my head afterward, I, you know, if I can get a good understanding of, um, of why I'm internalizing these messages the way that I am, I think that, um, I think that it's valuable, um, you know, for, for us to try to self-soothe and, and understand that, you know, we, we shouldn't necessarily take everything personally and, um, and help us make, you know, good informed decisions about our relationships that it's best for us and not necessarily what, what other people think we should do. Very great. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. It's been great. Thanks, everybody, for listening. So, as promised, just a quick note on what's coming in the future of Untenured Tracks. Um, we're taking a few months off. I'm not really sure how long, <laughs> um, so I'm not going to commit to a, a time frame here while I do this next round of interviews. Uh, but we're going to be doing something a little bit different on the show uh, for this next season. And then after that, we'll probably try something else different again and might expand the show a little bit. Um, so stay tuned for that. For now, though, our upcoming season of Untenured Tracks is going to feature faculty and students and recent graduates from a program that has meant the world to me over the last two and a half years. It's really changed my career and changed how I think about myself um, as an academic and as a writer and as a person. So the next season of Untenured Tracks, we'll be talking with folks associated with the Maslow family graduate program in creative writing at Wilkes University. So we'll be talking to a few poets, some folks doing creative nonfiction, hopefully a few screenwriters, um, and I'm just really excited to get to share with you uh, the brilliance of the, of the folks associated with this program um, and some of the wonderful things that they're creating and the art that they're creating. And if I can... If I can show you all just a fraction of, of how incredible this program is and everybody involved in it is, um, then I think I've done a good job. <laughs> so um, this is way underselling how great these conversations are going to be. But like I said, I don't know when it's coming, um, but stay tuned.